Lord God, as we've been looking to your great name this morning and singing about its power and what it does for us, we ask that you remind us of that power again this morning through your word. May you speak to us through it. May you teach us and remind us of your goodness and kindness to us. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I'm sure some of you have uh, heard this phrase before. The phrase is this, a little goes a long way. Maybe you've heard of that one before. Perhaps you've seen situations in real life where this is true. So uh, if you're cooking or something and you're trying to spice up a dish or add some flavor, maybe you're throwing in hot sauce or a spicy pepper to something, but the rule of thumb for most people is indeed a little goes a long way because the lesson is you don't want to overpower this thing that you're making with just a little pepper or a little hot sauce. Or have you considered this, how even the smallest of changes can have a pretty significant outcome on the whole of something. One example in my life was that uh, is uh, when I was younger, I got to the point where my mom was kind of teaching me how to bake and cook, and, and it got to the point where I was going to be making lunch, and the lunch I was going to be making was cornbread. This is something I had done lots of times before, obviously with my mom's help, but I was going to do it by myself. Monumental moment, I know. And as I was making this, there was about eight to ten different ingredients that I had to mix together in a bowl, and one of those ingredients was sugar. Now, the recipe called for a half a cup of sugar, which again, I had done numerous times before, but I failed to see the one on that fraction. I put two whole cups of sugar into this cornbread recipe, and so needless to say, the final result and the final taste looked nothing like I was expecting. Of all the ingredients, I just changed one. And it had a pretty significant and disgusting final outcome. Or how about this? Imagine someone came up to you and said that a butterfly flapping its wings could start a tornado. What would you think of that? You'd probably look at them as though they were a little crazy, of course. But that's essentially what American meteorologist and mathematician Edward Lorenz appeared to make in his theory that he famously coined as the butterfly effect. And if you've heard of the butterfly effect, what Lorenz discovered is that seemingly tiny, insignificant changes in conditions, usually that's in the atmosphere or weather, can lead to some pretty big changes in the final outcome. Sort of like a butterfly flapping its wings or someone putting way more sugar than is necessary in a cornbread recipe. As we move into taking a look at God's word this morning, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. And we're calling this series Empty to full. And so throughout this series, we have been and will be reminded of several themes that are found in this story, of the incredible way that God works both in the world and in our lives, and how he accomplishes his good purposes pretty much just oftentimes through the natural course of life. Also, how he is faithful in providing for and caring for his people, and how he has this ability to take what would seem to be empty, what would seem to be hopeless, and make it full. And so today we're going to be centering on and focusing specifically on kindness, both on human kindness and ultimately how human kindness flows out of this overwhelming kindness that God first shows to each of us. And kindness would seem to be one of those butterfly effects where a little goes a long way. That kindness in itself might seem very small and it might seem very insignificant, but its effects have incredible power and potential. And the same thing goes with the kindness that God shows to us in that we don't deserve it. We don't do anything to merit it. It just comes. It's who he is. It's a kindness that fills us up 
and it changes our perspective on things. And so if you were with us last week where we started Ruth chapter 1, you know that we were introduced to a woman named Naomi who left her hometown of Bethlehem. She left her hometown to go to Moab because there was supposedly food in Moab or the ability to get food in Moab because Bethlehem was undergoing a pretty severe famine. And so Naomi and her family, they settled in Moab and, and her two sons married Moabite women, one whose name is Ruth, the namesake of the book. Unfortunately, we read that tragedy kind of follows this family to Moab in that in a few short years, Naomi is left with her husband dead and also her two sons, leaving her and Orpah and Ruth as childless widows. So we know Naomi makes this decision. She says, we need to go back to Bethlehem and the famine is over. There's probably a better chance there. And so only Ruth decides and chooses to travel back with her. She commits to staying with Naomi and taking care of her. And upon their return, we see this desperate situation that they're in is they have no home, they have no money, and they essentially have no family, and so things are looking pretty desperate for them. Which brings us to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to, again, kind of split this story up into several sections, or this chapter up into several sections as we read this together. We're going to start with the first three verses. Ruth chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 3, reads like this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, I think it's really funny, this, this chapter does not begin how we might expect. We might expect this story to kind of pick up where we left off last time, where Ruth and Naomi are just trying to figure things out, life on their own, but, but the author gives us this really brief sentence, this introduction to a certain relative of Naomi's whose name was Boaz, and it's almost like this news flash or this public service announcement that's shouting out, hey, pay attention, remember this guy, remember who this guy is. And then it takes us back to Naomi and Ruth. And we see that they're trying to find their way. They're trying to make the best of their situation in Bethlehem. But as we mentioned last week, that was going to be pretty challenging for them. Yes, it is Naomi's hometown. But living as a woman in a patriarchal society had its challenges, we'll say. On top of that, being a widow, and for Ruth, being a foreign widow, would have added even more challenges to that. And so Ruth and Naomi are trying to get really creative on how they need to survive or what, what needs to be done for them to eat. And so we see Ruth offer to go out into the fields and glean behind the harvesters and pick up the leftover grain that is there. Again, we see this pattern of Ruth being the one who is initiating, who is the self-starter, who is the motivator. She's the one that kind of sees this hope and opportunity and this chance. And we see, again, poor Naomi is still stuck in despair. She is still trapped in this bitterness and depression. Remember when she came back, we read this at the end of chapter one, she changed her name. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because the Lord has made me bitter. And so her discouragement is still clouding her perspective and so really all she can do is just kind of acquiesce and allow Ruth to go out and see what she can find. And so Ruth does, she sets out, she finds a field and she begins to pick up the grain that was left over by the harvesters. And it's in this situation that we catch a glimpse, a very intentional way, that God has instituted and he personally put this in place as a way of showing his kindness to humanity, of providing and taking care of those who were poor or who were less fortunate. 
Now, a modern-day farmer might see this, and they're like, wait, the harvesters are leaving grain behind. Like, isn't that lazy? Isn't that careless? That doesn't sound very economical at all. But this was intentional. In fact, God's law actually commanded that this happen. In Leviticus 19, God is instructing his people on such matters, and he says this. He says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. And again, in Deuteronomy 24, God says, when you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. So God's intent, his heart behind this directive is to ultimately display his kindness and his generosity. Because it was going to be a heart of kindness that would deliver this opportunity to any landowner of a field to show goodwill and charity to the poor. And it would also allow those who are in need of this opportunity, it would allow them to experience kind of this sense of dignity because they're technically working for what they're gathering. But aside from all this, it's in this setting, it's in this specific situation that God is moving these pieces together for another reason. He's got a specific meeting that he wants to have happen. We're told that this is not just any field that Ruth ends up in. No, she steps into a field that just so happened to belong to Boaz. Dun, dun, dun. Right, the suspense is building. So let's do it. Continuing in verses 4 through 16, we read, Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. All right, I love how this encounter takes place. Maybe you caught it. At the end of verse 3, we read that Ruth just so happened to stumble into Boaz's field. And then immediately in verse 4, we read, as it turns out, that Boaz just so happened to walk in to his field at the same time, on the same day, coincidence, right? Some people might be led to think that this is coincidence, that this maybe happened by destiny or pure chance. And the way we read it, 
might even cause us to skip over the significance of this timing and just kind of chalk it up to, oh, this was just random happenstance. But this was way more than just a random encounter. This was no coincidence. God had intentionally and significantly aligned their schedules in order for this to happen. I know I make fun of these things a lot, and they'll probably have me be an extra in them someday, but it's kind of like in the Hallmark movies that you watch, when uh, in the first five minutes, you've got this girl that comes back to her hometown, and she bumps into the the single bachelor that everybody loves, and and you think, hey, that girl and that guy, they could be a great couple. Whoa, who would have thought? It's kind of like that. Now, this is meant to clue us in a little bit about how God works behind the scenes, not just in this story, but in our lives as well. Now, I'm not saying that true coincidences, say that 10 times fast, I'm not saying that true coincidences don't exist. They do, right? And I'm also not saying that you need to look behind every coincidence corner to see like, oh, how is, uh, is God doing something here in this thing? I'm not saying you have to do that either, but we do know that God is always at work. That he's always guiding the action of life for his greater good. And that's ultimately for our benefit too. And so there absolutely can be a supernatural purpose within a natural circumstance or a situation. We see that in this encounter in the field with Ruth and Boaz. And I guarantee you've probably had times and examples of that in your life too. Because God's hidden work is happening around us all the time. And there's a common saying you might have heard before that coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. And I think that's just kind of catchy. That's great. So we see our theme of kindness show up again in that it's kindness that actually draws Ruth and Boaz to each other. In fact, that's the first thing that we as readers, as individuals, we notice about them. It's the first thing. And it's also the first thing that they notice about each other. We see the reputation that Boaz has. He enters his fields, he greets his workers with a blessing, and they return the favor. Now, some of you are trying to imagine your boss doing that to you, or bigger, you doing that to them in return. Like, that's something to think about. But Boaz clearly has a strong reputation. He's an honorable man of high character, and it's obvious that he's well-liked and well-thought of. And we see these same characteristics in Ruth's case in that when Boaz asks about her, the first thing he's told about her is of her kindness. By this time, word had spread, it's a small town, remember, word had spread about this foreign woman from Moab who had accompanied her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem and was caring for her. And so needless to say, this struck Boaz and it struck many others with this deep appreciation for Ruth, for her kindness toward her mother-in-law. And we see this admiration doesn't just stop there. I mean, obviously, Boaz is impressed by Ruth's kindness for sure, but he's also impressed by her work ethic. She's going to town on this grain field. Boaz also knows of her willingness to put the needs of Naomi above her own. He knows that she has embraced the one true God as her source of strength. And so Boaz, we see, really blesses her with extreme kindness, with extreme generosity, and some pretty special treatment. He invites her to keep gleaning in the field. He allows her to even be towards the front of the line where she's going to get the most grain. He offers her protection and safety. He puts her at ease that she will not be harmed so long as she stays in his field. He tells her she doesn't need to worry about drawing water, that, oh, whenever you're thirsty, go over there to those jugs that the men have done, have gotten for themselves. You just take a drink from, the, from what they have. Don't worry about it. And he invites her to share in the midday meal. He even gives her leftover food to bring home 
to Naomi, and he instructs his harvesters to be a little more careless than usual, even leaving full stalks of grain for Ruth to pick up. Now, perhaps Boaz knows way more about this situation than we do at this point, which we will find out very soon. But think about it. Boaz is a, he's a pious, God-fearing Israelite. He cares about what God says, and he looks to be generous. And in this case, he's being even more generous than he needs to be, or is required to be, to help those who are less fortunate. He sees the letter of the law that God has set and instituted, and he sees the greater intent beyond it, too. Now, the slight predicament that Boaz has is he's interested and he's showing this extreme kindness to Ruth, who we're told over and over and over again is a Moabite. And we know from God's history that there's tension between these two groups, from Israel's history, that there's tension between these two groups, that the Moabites were actually excluded from God's people up to the 10th generation. But Boaz sees Ruth, and he sees someone who has been met by God's radical grace. She has turned away from the gods of Moab. She has left her culture and her country, and she's placed her full, full reliance and assurance in the Lord. And so knowing this causes Boaz to kind of throw away this legalistic mindset that some might have been wanting to entertain and welcome Ruth in a way that she probably has not been welcomed since she got there. I mean, we think about this, Ruth is just taken away by the kindness that Boaz shows her. It might have been the most kind thing that she had received since coming to Bethlehem with Naomi. Now, we also know, just because this is life, right? We also know there's a good chance that Boaz's kind actions towards Ruth were a little more than him just being a nice guy. We can be honest about that. But I think it can be both, right? We know that Boaz has a kind heart. We know he's respectable and generous. But perhaps there's something about the way these two are noticing each other, how they are responding to each other. It might not seem obvious to them, but it would fit right into the opening of any Hallmark movie. Hey, maybe this girl and that guy. I wonder. We wrap up chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, what a successful day this had been, right? It started out at the beginning with a lot of questions, with a lot of uncertainties, a lot of doubts, and it ended with tremendous blessing and favor. We see Ruth heading home. She's tired. She's exhausted. She's undoubtedly grinning and beaming from ear to ear. She's got this load of grain she was carrying and this news to tell Naomi of meeting Boaz. 
Now, to put this in perspective, Ruth gathered and threshed about an ephah of barley, which is about a bushel to bring home with her. And so that was close to approaching 50 pounds of grain. That's a pretty big deal. That would have been way more than anyone else, a paid worker, would have expected to get on a day. And so we know that's combined with Ruth's hard work ethic and Boaz's intentional generosity that he shows to her. And Naomi's reaction is just priceless. I mean, at the beginning of the chapter, she is full of discouragement. She's full of despair. Ruth's like, can I go glean the field? And she's like, yeah, just go. But for the first time in this story, perhaps for the first time in weeks, we catch a glimmer of hope in Naomi's voice. I mean, she is genuinely surprised by how fortunate Ruth had been. She's like, where did you end up? Who did you work for? What person do we have to thank for such generosity? And the moment that Ruth says the name Boaz, Naomi's excitement and interest shoots up to an entirely different level. She says in verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said. He, that's now the Lord, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now this is such a noteworthy statement by Naomi because we can see her eyes are starting to open. And for the first time in a long time, she's beginning to see God's action and his activity in everything that had been happening. She's beginning to catch a glimpse of his faithfulness to provide and to care for her. And she's beginning to see God's kindness to her and her family. Not that he hadn't been kind before, but her bitter heart had not allowed her to see or acknowledge his kindness that had always been there, even when times were really difficult and challenging. And then we also begin to see her wheels start to turn as she considers how Boaz might fit into all of this. God placing him as one of the guardian redeemers of their family, or some of your translations might say kinsman redeemers. That matters. This term might be one that, again, isn't a big deal to us. We might skip over it because we don't understand the significance. But again, this goes back to the way that God intentionally set up this community in a way that would have this built-in support system for his people. In Leviticus 25, we see God define what some of this, these obligations are for a guardian redeemer, some of the things that they are expected to do to help their family. We read in verse 25 of Leviticus 25, if one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, then a close relative, that's that guardian redeemer term, then a close relative should buy it back for them. So for Naomi, the pieces are starting to come together slowly, but she's starting to see it. Ruth can sense the excitement in in the voice of her mother-in-law, and both of them can see God's guiding hand in all of this. So as we consider this chapter this morning, there's one thing that we're also invited to consider, and that's God's kindness. Not just the kindness that he displayed to Ruth and Naomi, but also the kindness that he shows to us every day. The Old Testament uses this word to define God's kindness. It's, It's the word hesed. It's the same word that Naomi uses in chapter 1 where she prays that the Lord would be kind and show kindness to her daughters-in-law. And what this word does is it it captures this kindness of God that is never-ending. It's his covenant faithfulness, his unfailing steadfast love, his extravagant mercy, and his rich generosity. All of that and more is lumped into this word. It describes the way that he is exceedingly and overwhelmingly faithful in the way that he loves and cares for and meets our needs. And we see God's word peppered with this all over, this promise that God meets our needs. It meets them every day and gives us what we need. 
Sometimes his kindness to us is very obvious. You can point them out and say, yep, there's an example. And other times they're maybe more subtle, but they never stop. If we think about God displaying his kindness to us in this ongoing, everyday basis, his greatest and probably most dramatic display of kindness probably looks a lot like the butterfly effect that we were looking at earlier. And it actually began in Bethlehem, in Naomi's hometown. It was a small, insignificant town. It was a small, quiet, insignificant night when a small, insignificant baby took his first breath. Something so small, and yet this small, seemingly insignificant action changed the whole world. The Son of God, born to a woman, born as fully God and fully human, was the ultimate display of God's never-ending kindness to you and to me. We see this evidenced in Titus 3. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So when you think about it, God's kindness to us is a pretty incredible thing. And there are times, if you haven't had the one recently, you probably do. There's times where it should just make us shake our heads in wonder. Even looking at our text for today, even relating it to how we think and act at times, how God's kindness meets us in every situation. God's kindness meets us when we are like Naomi, when we're just barely hanging on, when our faith is literally hanging by a thread, and when we're full of despair and discouragement. His kindness meets us in that moment, and it moves us from despair to hope, or as Naomi says, from death to life. God's kindness meets us when we are like Boaz, when we're just trying to honor God and discern what's best and we don't always know what we're supposed to be doing, but we just reach out in love and kindness to those around us. And God's kindness meets us when we are like Ruth, when we're earnestly seeking him and trusting in his ability to provide or his ability to come through for us or his promise to meet our needs and how that gives us hope and confidence in him. The point is God's kindness always meets us. It never leaves us. And it's in his kindness that we find security. We think of Boaz blessing Ruth in verse 12. He talks about how impressed and thankful he is that Ruth is finding her refuge in the kindness of the Lord, finding protection literally under his wings. It'll be very interesting to note that Boaz's great-grandson would actually take those words and write them in a psalm. In verse 7 of Psalm 36, David writes, How priceless is your unfailing love. That's that Hesed love. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for this day. We're thankful for the ways that you provide and give us what we need. We're thankful for your kindness. Lord, your kindness is all around us and it's so evident in our lives. There's times where we can see it very plainly, and there's times where it might be hidden from us. That's not due to you, that's due oftentimes to our hearts. And so Lord, as we consider the kindness that you have shown us ultimately through your Son and the kindness you give us on a daily basis, may we be thankful and grateful to who you are. 
for what you do for us. May we desire to share your kindness with those around us. In your name I pray, amen. Go from here with this benediction, this blessing to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace and show you his kindness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.